listening to Into the Void, a Black Sabbath podcast with your hosts, John and Darren. Welcome to Into the Void, a Black Sabbath podcast. I'm your host, John, and I'm here with my co-host, Darren. And we are here today to discuss Black Sabbath's 12th studio album, Seventh Star. Released on January 28th, 1986, the album would find Tony Iommi as the only original band member left and would mark the beginning of a long and unsteady period in the band's history. After auditioning a number of singers, including Ron Keel, Jeff Fenholt, and Dave Donato, Iommi would bring in Glenn Hughes, formerly of Deep Purple, to handle vocal duties. Old friend Jeff Nichols was on keyboards, along with Dave Spitz on bass and Eric Singer on drums. The album was produced and engineered by Jeff Glicksman, who gave the album a shiny, modern-for-its-time sound. Originally intended as a solo album, the songs would break away at times from the Black Sabbath formula to showcase different aspects of Tony's playing, like the grinding blues of Heart Like a Wheel or the slick AOR pop ballad sound of No Stranger to Love. Due to pressure from the record label and management, the name Black Sabbath would be used at the last moment, thus putting this album in the awkward place of being a Black Sabbath album never intended to be a Black Sabbath album. To add to the confusion, the clumsy featuring Tony Iommi was added below the band name, confusing fans before they even had a chance to hear the music. Once inside the record, fans would find plenty to enjoy with hard-driving riffs of In For The Kill or Turn To Stone or the mournful album closer In Memory. But the constant lineup changes and instability in the band would begin to take its toll on the fan base, with even old friend and bandmate Bill Ward wondering, God, how much more can Tony take? With Glenn Hughes struggling to find his place as the frontman for Black Sabbath, the early part of the tour for the album would be a complete disaster. Glenn would be quickly dismissed after suffering vocal damage from a broken nose inflicted by a band roadie which would impair his vocals. Ray Gillen would jump in on vocals to finish the tour, but the band was clearly struggling. Maybe the best way to understand this period of the band is to take a look at the cover of Seventh Star, which features a picture of a tired, worn down Tony Iommi wandering lost in an empty field. All right, Darren, Seventh Star, what are your thoughts on this one? I like, I like your description of Tony Iommi. <laughs> wandering lost because i'm looking at the cover and and he he definitely does appear to be lost that is an awful awful picture <laughs> how, how anybody agreed to that but he looks tired worn down beaten sure and i have does. this vision that all out right outside of that picture is maybe a police officer going yeah yeah i'm sure you're the guitar player in black sabbath you could be the guitar player in any band you want to be, but you, you, we got to take you home. And be, I mean, he just looks like he's out in an empty field searching for band members. Searching. Yeah, it's just it's it's so unfortunate. Just like every and, and, and you know, I'm sorry to cut you off before you got into your thoughts on it. We'll we'll talk about the album cover in a little bit, but yeah, it's uh, just right off the bat with this this record. You know, it's something something's going on here. 
<laughs> yeah, so uh, my memories of the album when it came out, I, I honestly don't really recall when it came out. I, I know the roundabout time frame. I wasn't interested. Uh, I, I, I'm sure I saw it in the record store and, and like we just talked about with the cover, there was nothing appealing about the cover at all. And we're going backward to go backwards. Uh, the album before that, uh, born again, that album cover was striking. It, whether you liked it or not, whether you had issues with, with the subject matter, the color scheme, it was, it was a very attractive album cover. It was, it was exciting. And, you know, going back to uh, before that, we had Live Evil. That was a that was an interesting album cover. And then all the Black Sabbath album covers were interesting. This one just didn't it. You, you would draw the conclusion based on the cover, if, if you're going to judge a book by the cover, um, that it was an uninspired release that maybe was put out for contractual reasons to, to wrap up a record contract or something before he went on to something else. Um, it just didn't, it, and, and you're right, his facial expression on the cover just looked bewildered. It, you turn it over and, and there's some, even another picture of a bewildered looking Tony. And maybe that's where his head was at the time. But I, I have to say, um, I've really grown to like the record over time. Uh, but at the time that it came out, I, I wasn't interested and I didn't buy it uh, until maybe it was probably sometime later that year. A friend of mine had it and I, I saw it. I was we were either driving around or I was over at his house or something and, and I saw it and I I noticed that the cover he had it on cassette and I noticed that the cover had the um, the etching or the, I think it's a it's a copper plate or maybe it's a wood carving or something but it's uh i think it's called the temptation of saint anthony if i'm not mistaken or something with with saint anthony in it but it it had kind of a really cool gothic looking um relief etching on the cover and i, and I thought that looked pretty cool and it, and, it, and it piqued my interest in it so i um i borrowed it and i, I listened to it and you know i my expectations were really low to begin with, but I was, and maybe when your expectations are so low, unless something is just horrible, you're probably not going to be disappointed. And I didn't really have a lot of expe high expectations for this release, but I, I thought it was okay. And um, there was nothing about it though. And, and I'll still maintain this, that Association associates it with any other Black Sabbath release. It is completely pretty much a standalone thing. And you could say, well, or you could maybe argue that Born Again is somewhat of a standalone thing. And that's another album that wasn't intended originally to be a Black Sabbath album. That was going to be a different band. But through record label uh, pressure, it was called Black Sabbath. And same thing happened with this. So Tony can't really move away from the Black Sabbath name. If he wanted to do something that he didn't feel would challenge the legacy of Black Sabbath up to that point, he was kind of locked because no matter what he did, it seemed as though the record label was going to keep pushing him back into that, that uh, hole. And so here we are again. And this time it, it's distinctly different um, from Born Again. Born Again, you could say, 
would be more easy to associate with Black Sabbath's past because of the dark qualities that it has. Um, it has a, you know, that spooky, creepy vibe. And it also has a loose, jammy feel on, on certain songs, which is uh, similar to, to the Ozzy era. And it has sort of the dark qualities that I think uh, the Dio era established. So it's kind of a, kind of a mixture of the two of the two things of the two worlds up to that point of black sabbath that was born again this really had nothing in common with anything that that he had tony had done before add in the fact that there was no other original member in the band and it was like why are they calling this black sabbath and obviously it was to make the assertion that tony iomi is black sabbath and there are some people that would maintain that and say well that's true and they would defend it. And you wouldn't necessarily be wrong if you were to say that, because he's obviously been the only member that's been consistent all these years. But at this time in 1986, I think it was kind of taking, taking an unnecessary risk. Um, the, the label pretty much had, from, from my perspective, they had, they had two ways they can go with this. They, after listening to it, they could say, and should have said, yeah, this is going to be hard to put blacks the name Black Sabbath on. This is this is something that's really different. It it really isn't a Black Sabbath album. Um, so we can go ahead and release it as a Black Sabbath album anyway, and risk the fans becoming angry or uh, react adversely to the fact that this is clearly not an album that that is consistent with anything that that was released by Black Sabbath before, or we can just go ahead and take a gamble and release it as a Tony Iommi solo album and hope that Black Sabbath fans will buy it, but they won't be necessarily under the assumption that it's going to be something that's that sounds exactly like Black Sabbath. To me, it would, it would seem to make the most sense to do the latter, to release it as a Tony Iommi solo album, bring the Black Sabbath fans into it, but they would probably be aware that if it's a solo album, then it's going to be different from Black Sabbath. Otherwise, it would be called Black Sabbath. But when the label decided to call it Black Sabbath featuring Tony Iommi, it, it seems safer to assume that it is going to sound like a Black Sabbath album. And of course, it didn't. And I think to this day, that's been the biggest obstacle people have had with this album, was associating it with the other Black Sabbath albums. Yeah. It, to me, I think it's a great album. As a British rock record, I think it's great. I mean, it's hard to find flaws with it. You could maybe say the, the production's a little too slick. He wouldn't be wrong. But in 1986, there was a lot worse. You know, it's somewhat of a product of its time, but it, it isn't distracting. The production quality is definitely slick, but I don't find it to be distracting. Uh, but the songs are solid. I think in spite of the fact that Glenn Hughes is obviously struggling with a horrible drug addiction, I think he sounds great. Um, I think Tony sounds good. Um, there's a difference in tonality with his guitar. Like I said, it, it's on a very dark album. When it does reach depths of darkness, it's more from a bluesier edge, less of a down-tuned um, uh, previous Sabbath type of, 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 of sound. It, it, it seems more like he was going into more of like the bluesier side of his playing style of, of 
something that maybe he wanted to experiment with a little bit more than he had in the past. So, I mean, it's a good album and it's unfortunate that it came out as a Black Sabbath record because I think people were very, very quick to criticize it. And I, I don't think it's ever really recovered in its reputation from the way that it was released. Um, but I mean, that, that's pretty much where I am with it. I, I, I really like it. I think it's a good album. I, I have a hard time considering it a Black Sabbath album for the reasons that I just went into. But as a standalone thing, I mean, as, as a record, I, I, you know, I, I think it's really good. I think it's a great British rock record, even though uh, maybe you could say only half the band or three, three members of the five are actually British and the other two are American. But for all intents and purposes, it, it sounds like a, a British rock record. So. Uh, for me, you know, I, I can remember, I can remember when, when I got this, this album, I ordered it through a record, record club. And I remember the Black Sabbath featuring Tony Iommi thing. I thought that that was just something that the record club wrote in it. And yeah. it's funny how I can remember where I was get when I got certain Black Sabbath albums. In this particular one, I was outside doing yard work. It was probably March or April. I was a couple months behind when it when it actually came out. Back in those days, it used to take weeks for something to go through the mail. And the mailman came and I could see that they had the little cassette box that I got from the record club. So went over, opened it up. And I saw the featuring Tony Iommi and that confused me. I saw the cover and I just thought, you know, what is this? It just, it didn't have any kind of you know, classic Sabbath feel to it. You know, you think back, you mentioned the Born Again album cover. I love that cover. And especially when I was younger, I really loved it. Mob Rules, Heaven and Hell even the weird 70s things like never say die or technical ecstasy i still thought that those were great yeah. but yeah. i saw this and i was like you know what what is this you know what is what is going on and when i when i got around to listening to it i remember feeling it was the first time that i i wasn't i i didn't love a black sabbath album from the moment i heard it Every other Black Sabbath album that I had gotten, I just loved it from the second that I heard it. And, and when we did our Born Again episode, you know, we talked a lot about the mix of Born Again, but I think the 12, 13 year old me, I didn't care. It had the Sabbath sound. I might have noticed that there was something going on, but it was it was dark and it was cloudy and it had all the things I wanted from Black Sabbath. It had the doomy stuff, the dark stuff, the creepy vibes that you got through through all of Black Sabbath's catalog. When I when I heard Seven Star, I was immediately taken aback by like sort of the bright sound of the record. It Tony's guitar is kind of bright. Uh, the production is kind of slick and bright. It also didn't have the way the rhythm section was, it felt very sort of modern. Like it didn't have any of the sort of classic Black Sabbath 
rhythmic feel to it, which you would have gotten with Bill Ward or Vinnie Appice. It just it, it just didn't have that. It had this sort of, sort of more, I remember thinking it was more modern uh, feeling and sounding. And it just lacked for me sort of that, as I listened to the record, there were things that I liked about it, like In For The Kill and uh, you know, turn to stone, you know, I, I thought that there were good songs on it, but it just did not have the Black Sabbath feel and sound to me. Of course, we know now and quickly learned that it was intended to be a solo record. But at this point, I came into Black Sabbath when Ronnie was in the band. And when Ronnie left, and I say this all the time, I was young. I thought that bands stayed together forever. Uh, Ronnie leaves and I, I, I'm so disappointed in that. Ian Gillen comes into the band and I'm thinking, all right, here's, all right, here's a new chapter of the band. And I'm gonna be, just when I'm invested my heart into the Ian Gillen version of Black Sabbath, he's gone. And this whole period of Black Sabbath where members changing and this constant changeover. Uh, as a kid, I, I really got behind my bands and wanted to feel like almost like a sports team. Like I want to root for these guys. I want this to be my band. And this constant confusion with Black Sabbath where you would open up a magazine and one, one article is you know, who, who are these guys? And that two months later, there's a different group of guys in the pictures. And it was just so confusing and it was so hard to get behind it. And I just remember Seventh Star feeling like there were cracks in the armor. You know, Black Sabbath was my band along with, you know, Maiden and Priest and ACDC. But Sabbath was something special to me. And this just really felt like, okay, there's, I just felt disappointed and I never I never felt that before with any Black Sabbath release we talk about how in the days before the internet none of my friends listened to Black Sabbath so I took all the albums just on how I liked them so Never Say Die I like Never Say Die as much as every other Black Sabbath I like Technical Ecstasy you know I, I love them all uh, but Seven Star when it hit it was like I like this but it was the first time that I felt disappointed in the band. And, and we, our last few episodes, you know, we've been covering Dio. Uh, we did uh, Sacred Heart and uh, The Last in Line. And I mentioned Sacred Heart felt like there was some dents in the armor of, of the Dio band. And now I'm feeling this with, with Black Sabbath too. And, and it was a long gap too between Born Again, which I believe was 83, right? Born Again was 83, and this was 86. So three years, I mean, especially when you're, you know, that's the difference between me being 13 years old and me being 16 years old. That's like a lifetime. Yeah, it was a, yeah. Significant <laughs> a huge year. amount of time to pass, and it just felt like yeah. Sabbath just wasn't uh, relevant anymore, and it really wasn't, I had it on cassette, so I, the cassette didn't have that wood carving or the etching that you have on the sleeve of the vinyl of the vinyl. The, the, actually, the cassette, maybe it was a different for the club version. The cassette was where I first saw that wood carving. The, the LP has a picture of Tony Iommi in the center with a wood carved border. border but the yeah. cassette was all the wood carving. Oh, really? Like, 
Wow. Well, the, the, the commercial one, maybe the club version was different, but okay. that was what attracted me to it because I, I remember seeing the album with the, like <laughs> we talked about the bewildered picture of Tony and I wasn't very interested in it. The, the album cover didn't, didn't engage my interest, but when my friend had the cassette sitting there, I'm like, oh, is this the same one that, this is the new one? He's like, yeah. Wow, it's a different cover. Wow, it looks pretty cool. I opened it up and, you know, it had more of that wood carving illustration on the inside and i thought wow well, you know what this is this is pretty cool I mean, let me check it out maybe it's, maybe it's not bad uh but what you said about you know buying the sabbath records as they came out not having any prejudice as far as what you've read or what the reputation was behind each individual release yeah that's where i was too but there were certain ones that to me even in spite of the fact that i had no background as to which one was quote unquote good and which one was quote unquote bad there were certain ones <clears throat> that i gravitated more than others and technical ecstasy was one of them um, which ironically is one of the ones that most people consider to be to be bad but I, that was one of the ones i really liked that master of reality uh, sabbath play sabbath and paranoid and never say die maybe least of all uh there was something about it that just didn't really click with me but um with this when it came out i wasn't under an, any assumption that it really was truly a black sabbath record i i, I pretty much looked at it and I, I took it literally that this was some kind of a record label ploy to basically sell a band that really wasn't black sabbath it was just tony iomi and sure enough when i cracked cracked the clamshell open and looked at the j card and there's the band well where, where's where's geezer where's bill ward you know, no they're not on here <laughs> all these other guys that i don't know who they are so yeah my suspicions were confirmed that this was not truly a black sabbath record it was a tony iomi solo thing that the label decided to put out as black sabbath in hope of selling a selling some records which i think was a mistake like like i like i said before i think that they two sides of the coin on this one one would be to release it as a black sabbath album and risk pissing off the fans or take a chance and release it as a solo tony iomi record and you know you, you bring the sabbath fans over because they, they're curious what tony does when he's on his own initiative or they could have phrased it you know they could have done the Black Sabbath featuring Tony Iommi is so awkward. You use that when you have, it, it doesn't even make any sense because you usually use that when you have a special guest, like when Ozzy had uh, Elton John, it was Ordinary Man featuring Elton John. Yeah. So what right. they should have done was something like Tony Iommi's Black Sabbath. Yeah. Uh, they could have called it that and that would have made some sort of sense but the whole like featuring tony iomi thing it doesn't make sense today and and me i i i didn't sort of put that together i was still young thinking like like is this the new band and is this like yeah. uh, what we're gonna get for the next x number of albums this lineup i wasn't familiar with glenn hughes i hadn't I probably had heard burn, you know, the song burn, but I don't think I, I didn't have that record at that time. So I didn't really know Glenn Hughes. And that was another thing for me. Now I want to make it clear. I think Glenn Hughes is an amazing vocalist and he's one of the great of 
you know, greatest vocalists in hard rock, but I've never liked him in Black Sabbath. I felt like his voice, it didn't have, Ozzy has a creepy quality to his voice. Dio has an epic quality. Uh, Gillen had the screams and everything that that added to this sort of Black Sabbath sound. Glenn is a fantastic blues rock singer. And I mean, we're going to say this throughout this whole episode as a Tony Iommi solo record. Yeah, fantastic. But with the Black Sabbath name, he just doesn't fit for me in the sound. It just does not work for me at all. And it's such a shame that, I, I mean, what do I know about the business? And maybe they were just, I only was just backed into a corner and he had absolutely no choice. It, it, it would have been nice if he had said, well, then don't release this. I will just go and make a Black Sabbath record and we'll hold this or something, you know, because I think that it just, like you said, this album is has, like I said in the introduction, this awkward place in Black Sabbath history. It's a Black Sabbath album, but it's not really a Black Sabbath album. And it has just, you don't know what to think of it. it as a Tony Iommi record, and like you said, as a hard rock, British hard rock album, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty good, really good uh, album. But as a Black Sabbath album, it just does not, it just doesn't, just doesn't work. Yeah, no, it's a stretch to even call it a heavy metal album, really. It, it's more like a, a heavy blues rock album. Uh, it, it, I, I think, I mean, there are some some moments where it gets a little heavy, um, but as far as what heavy metal was in this time frame, it wasn't consistent with anything else that was going under the classification of heavy metal. Um, it was... It was different. It was even more in a traditional British rock style. Because um, when you're talking about 1986, you, you basically you had aggressive metal was starting to really uh, take hold of the scene. And then you also had like hair metal and you had bands like Motley Crue and Rat and Poison and stuff like that. And, and that was the thing that was happening. Uh, this didn't fall into any category. In fact, it was very British. It, it didn't sound at all like anything that an American band would put out circa 1986. And that was cool uh, because I liked British rock at that time. I liked White Snake. I liked uh, like Deep Purple. I liked Gary Moore. Uh, I was familiar with, with Glenn Hughes through Deep Purple. Um, and I think I, had, I think I had the Trapeze record. I'm not sure, but I, I was I knew who Glenn Hughes was when the album came out, but I definitely agree he is not a good Black Sabbath singer. There's nothing about Glenn Hughes's voice that can sound like it fits in with the Black Sabbath vibe or the aesthetic of Black Sabbath. There's there's nothing about his voice that lends itself to that. Gillen. You might think if you'd never heard Born Again, somebody proposed the idea of Ian Gillen joining Black Sabbath, you might think, ah, gosh, I don't know if that'll work because, well, Gillen's a singer in Deep Purple and, and Deep Purple's not a dark metal band. And then, you know, maybe if you're referencing a later time or, or somebody, or you're having the conversation at a later time after Gillen left Purple and you're talking about Gillen as a solo artist, you might think, 
duh, there's no way that's going to work because the first part of Gillen's solo career post Purple was fusion. He was in a fusion rock band. Or, well, that's kind of redundant, but he was in a fusion band. And then after that, then it was more of a traditional British metal band, Gillen. But nothing about either one of those two situations were dark. But lo and behold, when he joined Sabbath, he reached in and pulled that persona out and it really blended very well with the Black Sabbath aesthetic. And I think it was not for lack of trying. I, I think that he wanted to, to do it. He wanted to do it right. And he wanted to do it in a way that he thought, I think the entire band thought would be accepted by the fans. Because it, even though initially, I don't think Born Again was intended to be a Black Sabbath record, once it was determined that it would be, well, then they made it a Black Sabbath record. I don't think there was ever, even the acetate supposedly on Seven Star, what later became Seven Star, was originally just had Tony Iommi written across it. Don't think it was conceived at any point in the creative process to be a Black Sabbath album. I think that was probably a post-recording, yeah, preliminary release type of a situation, a decision that was made. Um, so it, it, it is, we say this a lot, it, it is what it is. And it as a Tony Iommi solo record, it's good. Uh, and that's the way I look at it. it. It's difficult for me to get into a conversation with somebody and defend this album as a Black Sabbath record. I can't do it. Um, anything anyone says that makes the point that it doesn't sound like a Black Sabbath record, Tony Iommi doesn't sound like he's on top of his game the way that he, he was in previous releases. I can't argue with that. But if we're going to talk about the album from a musical standpoint, I can definitely argue if somebody says that the album isn't any good. I can argue till I'm blue in the face that I feel that it is a good record. However, no, you can't you can't call it a Black Sabbath record. So it's pointless to go in and get into arguments with people on forum boards when you're when you're defending Seven Star, which I, I do from time to time. Uh, and it's usually from the standpoint that people are saying that the album is horrible. And I have to say, no, it's not. It's not a horrible album. Is, is, it, a black, is it a Black Sabbath record? Well, no, not really. But it's not, also not fair to say that it's, it's a bad album because there aren't any songs on it that are, that are bad. Some people may just not like them personally. You know, I hear a lot of, um, and we'll get into the song by song thing like you normally do, but I hear a lot of people say things about heart like a wheel or um no stranger to love no stranger to love is usually the one that people reference when they're like oh yeah i can't stand that album that's the horrible farthest album. away from black sabbath yeah you know most no black sabbath sounding song <laughs> maybe in their catalog yeah and so you know that's true i can't argue that i like the song personally i and i have for a while the album Upon I, the first time I listened to it, I I was taken back. I, I was a little bit stunned by it. I wasn't really sure how to react. Uh, but immediately there was a couple songs that that I liked. I thought, I, you know, this is a this is a cool song. But it did not give me a Black Sabbath feeling. I did not feel at any point in time while I was listening to it that I was listening yeah. to a Black Sabbath record. Yeah, and, and that's that, the defining moment for me was if I'm going to, if I'm going to like this album, if I'm going to find a, a place 
inside to accept this album and bring it in, it's going to have to be on the terms that it's it's a British rock album. I like Glenn Hughes. I like Tony Iommi. Boom. There you go. And then later on, we had like the, the DEP sessions and Fused, or Fused and then DEP. And, and nobody had a problem with that because it didn't say Black Sabbath on it. It was called something yeah. different. And a lot of Tony Iommi and Glenn Hughes fans and fans of, of both accepted it. And a lot of people like it because it wasn't trying to be something that it's not. Yeah, this was. And that's the biggest flaw about it. For sure. And I think as when I was younger, what conflicted me was, like you said, I liked it, but I didn't like it as a Black Sabbath record. So I was sitting there conflicted. And I was also thinking, oh, well, is is this what Black Sabbath is going to be now for the next so many records? Is the next album going to be called Black Sabbath featuring Tony? Is this the new direction that the band is going to go in? And I mean, let's face it, some people will argue that the Tony Martin era is not the real Black Sabbath. Some people argue that the Dio era or the, you know, they like the Dio era, don't like the Ozzy era. It's you know, all that is depending on when you came into the band. And I, I say the same thing with the Tony Martin era that you sort of have to take it on its own value. You know, if you sit there and you compare it to War Pigs or Volume 4, uh, yeah, it's it's not the same thing. And it's sort of, it's sort of what's happening here. It's just that it is so far removed from, you know, it's, it's, it's just hard to wrestle with those, with those two things. And I think the changing cl musical climate, we talked about this with Dio Sacred Heart, it, it just seemed confusing and, and it just didn't, I was here listening to Metallica at this point and moving on. And although I, again, I liked it, it just felt like, where is this going? I, I really didn't know. And it was the first time that I sort of cut myself off from Black Sabbath a little bit. I listened to it. I like, you know, I did like it, but I was not as invested in my, my attention started getting drawn to other places, Metallica and Megadeth and, you know, the other things that were going on at that time. And Although I would always buy every Black Sabbath album as they came out, this this was the first album that, you know, really sort of put a little bit of distance between me and and the band. And it's a, it's an unfortunate because it was really again it was just handled poorly with this name thing. And anytime you read anything about the Seven Star record, this is the constant debate: is it shouldn't have been a Black Sabbath album, and you know the, the name thing and everything. It's just such a shame that it didn't have to go down in history uh, the way it did. But as it stands, it is enjoyable. You know, I put on my vinyl record version of it today and it does have a nice production to it. it, it it's a tad bit dated, but not, not to yeah. a distraction. There's, there's no. way more dated things, uh, but it's, it's, it's full sounding. You can tell that there was some money put into it and it was, you know, it was produced very well. The different, uh, you know, we talk about the different players on this record. You have Eric Singer, who is currently with Kiss. And Eric Singer had come from Tony, a little trivia. Tony was dating Lita Ford at the time. And Eric Singer was in Lita Ford's band. And so that's how Eric Singer comes into the picture. Uh, Dave Spitz, who is the on bass, who is the brother of... Uh, from Dan Spitz. 
Anthrax. Yep, dance bits from Anthrax. And these are two very different types of players. You know, Eric Singer is a great drummer. He's very sort of driving, uh, ahead of the beat type of type of drummer. You know, a lot of chops. Dave Spitz, maybe a modern type of bass, modern for its time type of bass sound compared to the more, you know, the more laid back drumming of Bill Ward and Vinny Apice or the geezers, bluesy, you know, Jack Bruce and style inspired bass playing. So there were a lot of sonic differences going on here. The keyboards for the first time start to take a more prominent role in the sound. Jeff Nichols being uh, recognized as a, as an official band member for the first right. time, rather than typically getting the special thanks or additional musician, you know, uh, credit that he got here. He's, he's, he's a full-time uh, guy at this point. And so there's a he lot of his wings. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of keyboard, uh, keyboard is, is kind of through, throughout the record and everything. So. Yeah. And you could yeah. say that, yeah, he, Jeff Nichols finally earned his wings. Congratulations. The only <laughs> downside of that was it's not on a very popular album or very well-regarded <laughs> album. But nevertheless, you know, kudos to, uh, to Jeff Nichols for hanging in there long enough to actually become a... Get his name on the inside. <laughs> an actual member of the band, yeah. And I got to say, I mean, there are some keyboards that are a little dated, but, you know, as we go from song to song, there, there's, there's at least one where I think that Jeff really does some cool things that uh that I'm, I'm glad that that he was that he that the keyboards were were a more prominent part of the album because it does give it a little extra dimension makes it a little bit more interesting um and you know when you were talking about the argument about it not being a black sabbath record and, and your perception is that it has to have these qualities in order to be a Black Sabbath album. I, I I totally agree. Even when we move forward from here and we go into the Eternal Idol and then Headless Cross and then Tear, I do think it's important to note that if this album this album serves as somewhat of a segue to that Tony Martin era, uh, while the Tony Martin once they established that okay this is this is Black Sabbath this is what we're we're going to move forward calling the band Black Sabbath. I think that some of the, I, I don't know how to describe it, I mean, esoteric qualities are more involved with the band once it the aesthetic is established. There was no consideration for the Black Sabbath aesthetic on this album. So that's what it's really lacking. When it moves forward from here and they're thinking about it, I'm assuming, from the perspective of this is a Black Sabbath album, then maybe some of the decisions that could have been made to go in one direction or the other, whether it be light or dark, maybe it was more logical to move it into a darker situation because it was established as Black Sabbath. There was no pressure to do that. The songs were just songs and they landed the way that they did as they were recorded, they landed the way that they did on the album. I don't think there was any kind of aesthetic that was associated with it that was aiming to be a Black Sabbath album. I, I and, and that's the main thing. But 
if this album hadn't have happened, I think if you were to go from Born Again to Eternal Idol, I think you'd have the same reaction from the fans. I think you'd still have a lot of shock from now. Of course, it would be a year later, but so you know now you're talking about a longer time span of time between Born Again and and the album that would follow, which would be Eternal Idol. But I think you'd still have the same kind of reaction. This isn't Black Sabbath. This doesn't sound like Black Sabbath. And they wouldn't be wrong. But when you compare it, when you put Seven Star in between, it kind of cushions the blow or it kind of makes Eternal Idol maybe more of a welcome record because it starts to reintroduce that darker aesthetic in the band so it was like you didn't mind it as much even though technically it was just as different as seven star in some ways or as seven star was to born again it's like seven star kind of cushioned the blow for the direction that the band took from that point on all the way up until the 90s well yeah with the exception of dehumanizer yeah, so it, it was it. The, the Seven Star kind of did a service inadvertently and in a way to kind of get the fans. It was almost like a palate cleanser or a reboot. Where okay, so Born Again back, that's behind us. This is what we're doing. It's not Black Sabbath, but we don't know really what we're doing at this point we don't know what direction this band is going to go in uh there obviously are no original members there's only tony he's trying to keep the flame burning he's trying to keep this thing alive hoping that it ignites somewhere along the way maybe the guys come back maybe they don't maybe there's a new band established we don't know but in order to keep the music flowing this is kind of what what we're doing whether it was a record label's decision or if it was tony's decision i i don't think it was as much tony's decision as the record label's decision or the management at the time i think tony was just only interested in making music so this is what he was doing he was making music with his friend jeff nichols and newly recruited glenn hughes um and this is what we got seven star but without seven star I'm not so sure that, you know, it would have really made it possible for an eternal idol or a headless cross, although you could argue the headless cross took more of that Dio vibe and brought it into what was established on eternal idol. Likewise, I think eternal idol may have taken some of the, some of the vibe that was established on seven star and brought it in, made it a little bit more darker, painted it a little bit more with a black Sabbath brush. And and we moved on from there. But. Yeah, I think that was a, that, that's a good point, and I, I I agree with all that. I would say too that it's it's the album that is transitioning the band to to, to being Tony Iommi's band. Yeah, where he's now the guy making all the decisions, and you know, granted Tony Martin was in for a number of records, and Tony wrote, Martin wrote lyrics. And, when Cozy Powell comes into the group, he has input into the group. But this is really the transition from the early Black Sabbath, if you will, the geezer, geezer Butler, Bill Ward, or, you know, that. And now Tony's the guy 
he's yeah. the guy sort of directing this. And maybe in some ways, because the album wasn't, it wasn't like the album was a, was a flop or anything as I was researching. No, it actually did half decent. Yeah, the Probably. album actually did pretty well. And it, it, it uh, in the UK, it did fairly well. Not yeah, so it reached that. like number 27, I think. I think it broke like the top top 30. I don't have the information. Oh, it was uh, number 27 in the UK and number 78 on the uh, 78. top 200. The No Stranger for Love video was getting a fair amount of regular rotation. So maybe in some ways, uh, the album may have let Tony Iommi know that, well, maybe I can continue the name of Black Sabbath with me being the only original uh, member left in the band. And if, if he had just called it Tony Iommi and he had this level of success, he probably just would have continued as Tony Iommi. Mm -hmm. He may not have gotten the, the Tony Martin era of the band or, you know, who knows how fate would have yeah. played out. But I agree with you that this is an album that is sort of transitioning the band into a new, into a new phase. And so if you wanted to generalize this point out, it's sort of the Tony Iommi uh, Black Sabbath phase. Yeah. He's, he's the guy uh, now influencing the band. So... Yeah, it would have been interesting if, uh, just to use uh, my imagination a little bit here, if they just called the band Seven Star yeah, and started with the album. Oh, Tony Iommi's Seven Star, if they wanted to, like Richie Blackmore's Yeah, Brain. right. Yeah, yeah maybe that might have Tony been. Tony Iommi's Seven Star. And, and it's, it's just strange that he couldn't have sold it to them, like, well, look, okay, just we'll go in and record another black sabbath record you can take this and but you know who knows the way the business side of these things work and it sounded like it was sort of a last minute glenn hughes talks about how it was like at, basically at the last moment that he found out that it was going to be called black yeah. sabbath and he was totally not prepared we talked about the debacle when they went out on tour that glenn you mentioned it already glenn was very very deep into drugs in drinking at this point in his life and uh, i only talks about how they had a a roadie uh on him 24 hours a day basically watching him his every move to to, to keep him in line and uh you know he was just out of control and then he got into some sort of dust up with with somebody in in the sabbath camp he got punched yeah. in the side of his face yeah broke yeah. his like orbital bone and the blood yep. was dripping down from that got onto his vocal cords and and he was just if you can find various uh on youtube video bootlegs of the band during this period and there's audio bootlegs of course and even when his voice was sort of there you could tell that and glenn admits this that he just wasn't comfortable uh you know singing singing the black sabbath catalog he didn't know how to handle it he didn't yeah. he was also not comfortable as a front man he was used to playing bass and and having that and that was sort of his front man thing was him with his bass and singing uh here he he was just out on his own and it just it just never never worked so they they had to get rid of him dan spitz uh knew ray gillen and i guess ray gillen was brought along brought along for the last couple of shows that glenn did and they just let glenn go and then ray gillen 
moves into the situation, but moves into the band. But it was just a, uh, you know, the whole thing was just, just as soon as they called it Black Sabbath, it just caused a whole bunch of like dominoes to fall in the in the wrong yeah in the wrong yeah. direction, you know. Well, yeah, that's exactly what happened. Um, he got in the fight, and the the blood from the you know the the injury to his eye socket went into his throat, and he couldn't sing. Um, but even still, yeah, you're right. Without his bass, I mean, it just was a strange thing to to see. And of course, he had that horrible mullet. Oh yeah, yeah, it was like the dreadful king of all mullets at that time. Yeah, um, dreadful. I mean, you know, uh, Glenn Hughes was like a pretty, you know cool looking rock star guy back in the seventies. He has wild hair, you know, he's got a Rickenbacker bass and, and that was like his whole, his whole visual. This was something that just looked odd. He, he just looked like he was like a uh, Colombian drug Lord or something. <laughs> um, but when you, I had to, I had to laugh when you, you mentioned that uh, Ray Gillen was along for the ride during the last few shows before Glenn, past the baton it, it, it's kind of funny because the way that martin popoff describes it in, in one of his books it's like glenn was traveling and this guy ray just kind of shows up and glenn glenn keeps looking over his shoulder like get it who's this guy what's this guy doing here <laughs> like waving to him hey how you doing oh, I, saw glenn, you I, saw, I saw an interview with glenn and he says he goes the first thing that tipped me out he goes who's this really good looking guy? Like that's, he goes, yeah, I knew he goes, I saw this guy. He was just too rock star looking. He was too yeah, good looking to be part of the road, you know, to just be some guy hanging, hanging around the band. And then he mentions he was sitting in his room and he heard some people like talking in the hallway, like, yeah, did you hear they have a new singer, uh, you know, Ray. And, and that's when Glenn was like, uh, okay. And then he got served his, papers but he said he was always friendly with ray and he said it was funny because he, he even introduced himself to ray and as a hi i'm glenn and he said hi i'm ray i'm you know i'm just a friend hanging out here on the tour and, yeah and everything it's, it's it was strange strange rock and roll business type of scenario it's just it's it's crazy the way things i guess were rolling along in the 80s and you just know that in 1986 i mean there was like the whole background was just like cocaine yeah. <laughs> uh, you know i mean I Jeff think everybody was Lixman was yeah he was he was he had a, uh, a penchant for it and tony tony described uh he's like well you know glenn it's well known that glenn had a had a really bad drug habit and he's like and i wasn't much better so you just know that this whole thing was just like a, in a haze of like yeah. drug addled decision making basically and it, it sort of stands the reason that it it was and and that's kind of the the legacy of this record but um yeah i always thought that was kind of funny first time i read that that ray ray gillen just shows up and glenn he was just like hey who the hell is this guy <laughs> but you know ray did a, a fantastic job I, I i think you you and i we listened to uh a couple of the shows from 1986 and we were on a road yeah. trip somewhere um and I, I was amazed at how 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 great Ray Ray Gillen sounded uh, oh, yeah, doing this stuff. Real, yeah, real confident. And of course, he yeah. you know he adds his own flavor to it. But he was a very confident singer, young guy too. I think he was only like twenty four years old or something. Yeah, just a soaring really. Robert Plant like voice. Yeah, he, 
if you listen to if, if you, I, I'm not sure if these are still in print, I'm guessing they're out of print, but the double disc deluxe editions that Black Sabbath did so many 10 plus years ago, I believe they were put out on Sanctuary, I think. Yeah. Uh, the seven star version, the second disc comes with uh, a live show that has uh, it has Ray on it and you can hear Ray's voice. And if you look on YouTube uh, too, you can find uh, live clips of Ray with the band. And yeah, he just sounds, you know, absolutely incredible. Yeah. All right. So we jump into the songs then. So the album opens with In For The Kill. Uh, this is a great opener. I love it. Yep. Uh, yep. Hard driving, almost power metal like at, at, at times it's very driving it's very aggressive i think tony has a great solo in it yeah uh, drumming is 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 really great this is a very different kind of black sabbath style drumming it's maybe a little bit more modern you know eric singer has uh, great chops and everything is a very driving feel but uh yeah, I, I think this is a this is a great album opener. It's a great sort of heavy metal uh, type of song. Maybe the most metal song on the record. Yeah, um, one of them. Uh, it's a, like you said. I can't argue. It's it's a great opener. Um, Tony solo. I really really like it. Um, it's to the point where I, I look forward to hearing that in the song. And um, it's it's a unique vibe that that solo that that Tony does, and, and really very suitable to the song. And you could tell he's inspired by the music that he's that he's playing it to and um yeah it really works and and it's cool that there's a, some inspiration taking place on this album because you you could probably use that as one of the many reasons to not like the album but you can't say that there isn't some inspiration taking place in this uh, and for the kill similar to you know maybe some of the other album starters like you know neon nights or yeah, the night it, it it kicks things off in a really good way. It's a jamming tune, and it's one of the first songs that I think that really establish it as a, a very strong British rock record. It has that kind of almost a rainbow feel to it a little bit. Yeah, but it also has a little bit of a modern for that time. You know, it's sort of updated. Felt like it updated the band a little bit to like where you know you had the la scene was was big at the time with guys with tons of chops and everything and this sort of in, in some ways i think brought them in line with that much the same way scott travis joining judas priest would when you heard that drum intro to painkiller it was yeah. sort of like a signal like yeah. okay we're here to hang with all these young kids and all their chops and everything yeah I sort of think it is the same way on this it's like all right this is this is a kind of call to arms like Black Sabbath. We can hang with all these shredding guitar players and all these guys with all these chops on their on their instruments. In a way, I mean, uh, it's not the first time that there's been double bass on a Black Sabbath record. I mean, Bill Ward experimented with double bass as far back as Volume Four, if not uh, in some parts of um, well, definitely on the tour in the Master of Reality tour, he had a double bass kit. So. Uh, double bass drum drumming wasn't really far into Black Sabbath at this point, but I think as far as when you ref made the Scott Travis reference, uh, yeah, I, I can hear that. Yeah, I mean, because uh, Eric Singer was definitely you know, he was an American style drummer. He was not a British musician. He was coming in from playing with Lita Ford. He was you know, in and around LA, um, so he had a little bit more flash to his style. But by the same token, 
kind of reminds me a little bit of Fireball a little bit. So yeah, it's, got that it, it's kind of like it's the best of both worlds. You, you do get a little bit of an American flash sound with the, with the drumming, but you also get somewhat of a traditional British rock thing with the you know the I guess it's tonally too the tone of the drums is is was very sort of modern for the time. It reminds me also of Eric Carr joining yeah. this, you know, his drum sound sort of updated a lot of reverb of, of the band. And I sort of feel like this the same thing here. This drum sound is like he says very, very American and uh, you know, just gives a different feel to uh to to the band. All right, uh, No Stranger to Love. Uh, this is one that, if you take it for what it is, it's a, it's a good melodic pop song, melodic rock song. It's catchy. Uh, you can't help but sing it in your head. Uh, it's, uh, the video is maybe a little cringy. Uh, Tony driving around in his car and dogs running around or something. What, what's going on here? But uh, it, it's a, it, I'll say that it's it's a catchy melodic song. You really have to suspend your belief here and really understand that this was intended to be a solo, a Tony Iommi solo album. This this does not sit at all in the sound of Black Sabbath, one might say, well, they've done ballads in the past, like changes and stuff like that. But when Ozzy sings something, even when Ozzy sings a ballad, like she's gone or something like that, it always has sort of a creepy sound to it because of the tone of Ozzy's voice here. This just sounds like a very melodic AOR radio rock type song. And that doesn't make it bad. It's if you just if you take it for what it is, let's call it a guilty pleasure. <laughs> I don't feel guilty about taking pleasure in the song at all. <laughs> I like it a lot. I, I like uh, well, as far as Black Sabbath ballads, I'll take I'll listen to this a hundred times before I listen to Changes once. Wow. Talk, yeah, I mean, I, I really like this song. I like and you know what? It, it could be a song that isn't very exciting but there's a lot going on in the performance of this song that i think really sell it for me uh glenn's vocals i mean there's a yeah. certain point where it just sounds like he's pouring out i mean he's yeah. he's in it he's all in he's singing right you know right from his heart i mean it's like he sells i, I don't know if it's, it was just, the, the the desperate state of mind that he was in at the time that that was the kind of like the the catalyst for, for making this his performance on this song, but man, he just belts it out and he sounds so fantastic. Um, I love Eric Singer's drums, as simple and as basic as they are, they're really dramatic. Uh, when the drums first come in, the keyboards I could probably live without, but it does kind of give it a, a bit of an atmosphere. I don't like it. Keyboards sound, sound a little dated, so I'm not really. I, I like that probably least of anything that's going on in this song. But so you have Tony coming in with a, with a bluesy solo, and then you have the keyboards coming in pretty much simultaneously. <clears throat> and then that kind of starts things off. And then Eric's drums come in. It's like, boom, 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 boom. And it just gives it a dark feeling. You could have, a, you could have another drummer do the same thing. And if it had 
a different sound to it, but man, it's just like, it's the reverb, it's the way that the, the drums are EQ'd in the mix. It just sounds like boom, like it's just taking you down this bluesy path. And with Glenn's vocals uh, just pouring out his heart, it, it's like you can take a song that for all intents and purposes might be a commercial sounding song. I mean, maybe you could you could hear a demo of this song or somebody could have given this song to one of the players in the band and say, okay, well, this is, this is what we're going to, this is one of the songs for the new album. This, you got to learn this. And they could hear it in a demo form and be like, okay, well, that's not very exciting. What can we do to make this song really sound cool? It's like, well, let's own it. Let's just really get behind it and just, you know, play our hearts out on it. Uh, Tony solo. It sounds like he's really inspired you know, I mean, that to me is what <clears throat> is attracted is attractive to me about this song. It's it's that I, I'm a firm believer that you can sell anything if you believe in it. If you if you have conviction in in in, in what it is, you can you can pull it off. And I think that there is some conviction in the performance of this song, and I think it's one of the reasons why I really really like it. And I think it's. I think it's more successful than people give it credit for. Uh, the video, a little cringy, but it's all black and white, like and black and white. There's very little grayscale in it. It is like black and white, and and the bewildered Tony from the front <laughs> and back cover is kind of wandering around. So it's like an extension of the yeah. album cover. Now he's wandering around in his car. He's wandering around. He's walking around. I think for most of it. I'm not. I don't know if he's driving. I, it's been a little while since I watched it. I think I actually posted it on on Facebook not too long ago because I was listening to it in the car and I couldn't get out of my head. I'm like, ah, man, it's such a great song. I love this song. And as the time goes by, I think I, 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 I've grown even more fond of it. Uh, but yeah, there's some, there's some funny, cringy things about it. They, there's a woman in it who I'm assuming is the person that is the, you know, it's illustrating the, the storyline of the plot of the song. And it's actually an actress. That, it, and I think she was bing crosby's uh niece or something yeah a little little bit of trivia there uh but she was in uh she was a regular cast member of star trek the next generation in the 80s i think this might have been before she was on the series and she was also in the movie pet cemetery as the mother um yeah so anyway so she's in it and uh and there's some cringy things there's some i think there might be <laughs> i think jeff nichols is the guy with the dog yeah. He's walking a dog or something. Uh, there's nothing cool looking about Jeff Nichols. <laughs> he's, just, he's just Jeff Nichols, but he's he's trying his trying his best to look cool. And I don't know, man. I you got a soft spot for this. Song. I have a soft spot for no strangers. I can ones. understand it. Like I said, it's and I agree with you. Glenn sounds incredible on it. This is totally his money zone. This yeah. bluesy ballad <clears throat> type of thing. I just wish they could have, and this is gonna sound really bizarre. But I could hear this song on like Born Again. But imagine Born Again, where if you take the keyboards out of it, it's got these layered dark guitars. Imagine Geezer's big, mm -hmm. fuzzy, heavy mm -hmm. bass to it. I can just picture Ian Gillen singing something yep. like this. And a la Keep It Warm, you know, that kind mm -hmm. of like big yeah. chorus type of vibe. If the song just had a little bit more... 
Uh, I, mean, I mean, here it fits along with the production of the record, but I, I think I would have liked the song better if it had a little bit more guitars in the verse yeah. or something like that. And here's something that just came to me. I, I, I can't say if this is, is true or not off the top of my head. Is this the first Black Sabbath song at this point or at any point to have the word love in the title? <laughs> we'll think about that. <laughs> I can't off the top of my head think of another yeah. Sabbath yeah, song that has the word love in the title. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're right. I, certainly not in the lyrics, but it, in the title. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think this probably is the first Black Sabbath song. Yeah, it might be the only one too. The but man, you know what? You you hit the nail on the head. I I think this is very similar to 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 Born Again. I I, I agree. I think if the if the production were a little bit different, then likewise, if you were to take Born Again and have Glenn Hughes sing it, and or keep it warm, if you did that with Keep It Warm, if you or keep the, keep it warm, yeah, because it's more right. like a romantic, you know, like yeah. a relationship type of song. Yeah, I mean, if you were to take those songs and have Glenn Hughes sing them and brighten the production up a little bit, you'd have something that probably wouldn't sound too strange on this album. Likewise, I think if you took No Stranger to Love and darkened it up, gave it more of a darker production quality, and like you said, if you had Ian Gillen sing it, I think you'd have something that fans would probably be a little bit more quick to embrace. Um, and rightfully so, I mean, because it... it it is a bluesy song in a similar way to, to, to Born Again. Um, but Born Again isn't so much a love song, and this is, so that would be the main difference. But you know, there's a lot to be said for the way that something is, uh, is produced. It can, it can really shape the, uh, the perception and the overall, I guess, vibe of the song. Yep, and a little bit of Black Sabbath trivia for you. And Darren, you should know this, who played bass on the song No Stranger to Love. <laughs> <laughs> uh you know I, I always forget that guy's name is it <laughs> and, and i'm laughing because for those who don't have the inside joke here this is on my youtube channel we we did a couple episodes where we played what i call metal jeopardy and there was a black said darren was on an episode there was a black sabbath category and darren thought he was just going to clean house and the and with, with the black sabbath questions until he ran into the big one which was who played bass on the song no stranger yeah and it's only love. on no stranger to love so i'm going to say i think i'm not looking I'm, I'm looking but i'm not i'm not looking but i'm going to say gordon is it gordon copley yes is, it, is that what it is did i get it yeah. right Okay, so I'm looking at the lyrics. Copley, but didn't read. He, he okay, so I, it, it is lodged in my memory now. He played yeah. on no I was like, wait, so wait. for everybody out there, a little Black Sabbath trivia for you. Yeah. All right, well, next we move on to Turn to Stone. Uh, this song always sort of sat for me, same for In for the Kill. It's it's fast. It's It's got the same sort of feel to it. Great guitar solo from, from Iommi. Uh, yep, another one. Cool one, again, it... Fits, fits the same place for me that uh, In For The Kill does. Maybe I might've put this song on the second side of the record just because it's so similar in feel yeah. for me to In For The Kill for it to come up two songs later seems seems a little strange, but uh, but it's cool and I like it. And uh, like it's cool riffs and great Iommi solo. Yep, that's another winner for me on side one. Uh, yeah, and you're right, it is similar to In For The Kill. It's got a little bit of a different vibe, but it's it's in a similar vein. Another great solo by Iommi. Um, there's another one I look forward to in the song when I'm listening to it. Like he does this little lick. It's, it's, it's like a recurring 
it's like a like maybe a little trill or something. I don't yeah. know how you describe it, but yeah, it's, it's really cool and it, it seems like it's inspired by the riff. So um, yeah, I like it. It's straightforward, but uh, it's a good one, and I, I like uh, I like it in the context of side one. You're right. I mean, maybe it is a little too similar to to In for the Kill, but um, it's cool to come out of No Stranger to Love and get back into something that's driving. Yeah, yeah. So it it, it works and in the context on side one for me. And it feels like, you know, I mentioned earlier the drums, that the drums in some ways had the band sort of sound like they could hang chops wise with the youngsters uh, during this, you know, in 1986. And I even felt like with Iomi's playing his solo and in for the kill and his solo in turn to stone here, he's playing fast and he has a lot of chops here and he's really moving all over the fretboard and everything you know kind yeah. of, again going back to Judas Priest like with pain I think of that guitar solo and painkiller you know that's a statement from Glenn yeah. Tipton saying hey I, can, hey I can play as fast as you kids out there if I really want to I feel like I only too you know his his playing sort of he took his playing to to another level here you know maybe he's inspired by everything that he's hearing around him in the la scene and all the this Let's is the keep... era of the guitar hero and the guitar shredder so maybe that was yeah. influencing iomi to a degree it's interesting to note that at this time judas priest had released or maybe there's no they had released uh turbo so yeah, that's, where, that's where judas priest was in, in there right in their career More cracks in the armor of my favorite bands it's all sort of happening sacred heart seven star uh, uh turbo what, what's maiden doing in 86 I think uh, somewhere in time seven. yeah somewhere, somewhere in time. time so i was still okay with maiden, but uh, priest and and every sabbath and dio there was i was starting to get a little bit a little bit nervous but okay so uh next is this short little keyboard sound effect interlude sphinx the guardian mm -hmm. i guess it's a cool setup for the seventh the song seventh star although it lacks a little bit of again here's where i wish that it could have been something like stonehenge or the dark from born again just have more of a darker creepier vibe to it this just sounds a little bit uh thin or something like that i don't know but it's just it's sort of at uh, clocking in at a minute and nine seconds. It's just, I, I never really think of it as its own thing. I just think of it as the intro yeah. to Seven Star, which Seven Star is a cool song, uh, kind of following if we talk about these two as, as one thing. Uh, Seven Star, it, it has that uh, Rainbow Stargazer, Dio, uh, Egypt, the chains are on, that sort of Egyptian theme that sort of vibe to it. Uh, it's a cool one, a little bit of a cashmere style main riff yeah. from Miami there, which I think is pretty cool. I, his guitar solo has a little bit of a Middle Eastern sound to it, which is which is neat. Uh, and Glenn sounds sounds great on it. So uh, yeah. it's a pretty cool one and it's a, a pretty heavy one. I think it could have been set up a little bit better with uh, that little intro thing. That to me just sounds like, uh, I don't know, it's like an afterthought or something or wasn't finished or something you know yeah uh it's funny you mentioned stonehenge because it, it does remind me of stonehenge it's almost it's very similar to stonehenge and i was never really crazy about stonehenge stonehenge always sounded to me i like the dark i think the dark when we're we're talking about these the two instrumental sound effect songs from born again but uh the dark 
coming before Zero the Hero was really effective. It, it kind of gave this, this atmosphere, this uh, foreshadowing atmosphere that would, you know, launch into the, the main riff in uh, Zero the Hero. Um, so the dark really worked. It was creepy. It was, had like voices and yeah. scary. Uh, scary sounding. The, the Sphinx is similar to Stonehenge and it has that almost new age yeah synthesizer sound that not really music it's not really sound effects somewhere in between um and it's there it 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 kind of it builds up starts to create an atmosphere that that goes that moves into the the song of seven star and, and seven star is very plodding like you described it's um it's, it's kind of epic. It has the uh, Egypt chains are on kind of vibe. Um, has a cashmere. It's like an epic plotting song. Uh, production kind of pulls it back a little bit from being more effective in an epic way. It, it kind of, it doesn't, the production doesn't really give it an epic quality. It just yeah. kind of meanders. It plods along. Not a lot of variation. Uh, maybe it's a little longer than it needs to be, but the overall vibe of the song is pretty cool. I've never really been enamored with it, um, but it's okay. It does feel like it comes up a little short. Like it, it could have used a Tony Carey or Don, or a, a keyboard player that played with Ozzy uh, Don Don Airy. Don yeah. Airy. It could have used somebody like that. Imagine if there were some layered string type sounds like what you get in Stargazer or, or Cashmere. And I always felt it was strange, like where Iomi is playing that riff, it's like it's high up on the neck or something. Like it needed like either like a heavier yeah. bass to it or something. Yeah. Just it's lacking yeah. in like a, I just could hear like a downtuned guitar would have given it a real like heavier chunk yeah that it just it, it does it does sort of come up a little light and it's a song that it begs itself to have some production to it and it's the yeah. last song on side one where you know you think of something like heaven and hell which is a big epic song ending side one of, of that album this could have had the same quality i think if you know, i don't I, I don't think jeff nichols is a don airy style keyboard player no he's, he's no not he's that kind of keyboard player he could have added you know if they had just produced it more and added you know imagine some strings or a choir or something to just make it more epic and dramatic and layered some more guitars on it it could have it, it could have been a lot more dramatic it could have been a lot heavier so it does kind of it it it, it 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 feels like it's trying to fill that space of heaven and hell or uh you know, cashmere or that kind of thing, but it just does just comes up short from from all of it, those. It doesn't have any of those epic qualities. Yeah, it would have benefited from another guitar track, like something that was in the mix that was a real heavy, dark, even just like you know, some some just some chords or something that were just played in the background for atmosphere to give it that weight, um, which I think is what it's lacking. It's lacking some heavy weight um and you're right jeff nichols is a keyboard player he's a you know he he serves the function he's utilitarian at best um 
insofar as his keyboard prowess as is probably equal to his contribution as a rhythm guitar player he's he's yeah. the guy he's you know he's like a, he's like a crew member he's a, but he's a musician you know he he'll, he'll get the job done but it's not his specialty but he can do it and it would have been great for the writing process but when we're moving into actual execution and recording of the song you're right it might have been better to have like a tony carrier or a don airy and speaking of don airy i mean in and around this time i don't know if you remember but there was this super group called phenomena and it was um it was launched by Mel Galley's brother Tom, and it was like a who's who of all the the current and and, and happening hip British British musicians. Uh, you know, there was Don Airy, um, Glenn Hughes was a part of it, uh, Gary Moore, I believe, Mel Galley, um, Max Bacon, who was in a new wave of British heavy metal band called Bronze. I'm sure you're familiar with them. Good voice. So Max Bacon was in GTR, um, which was sort of like a, another band similar to Asia. But uh, Max Bacon was a uh, singer in the, the new wave of British heavy metal band, Bronze. But this Phenomena band was uh, kind of a who's who of British rock musicians. And um, so a lot of these guys were available to just do one-off things. And it would have been cool if uh, in and around this time, and obviously these guys were kind of like active if Tony did uh, reach out and maybe get Don Airy or Tony Carey or somebody to do a guest and, and really focused in on, on, I mean, obviously it became uh, the title of the album. So, I mean, as a title, title track, I mean, it would be worth putting a little bit more effort into it. It, it just sounds, sounds kind of lazy in a way. It could have been, should have been, but just wasn't. And I think the the guitar tone on this record, it works for like In For The Kill and Turn To Stone because it's kind of bright and, and clean, if you will. I mean, it's distorted, but it's but here on Seven Star, we could have used a little bit more of a dirtier, darker uh, sounding old, you know, old style Tony Iommi guitar sound, I think it would have benefited this yeah. better. There's virtually none of that on this album. It's almost as though it was a conscious effort for him to not try yeah. to sound like sludgy or doomy sounding. Yeah, albums. it was clean, it was yeah. it was crisper. I mean, there's you could tell it's Tony, but it's definitely a different approach. And um, I don't think that was accidental. I think that was what he intended to do, and I think he probably intended to do it initially to make it something that was different from black sabbath it's like a solo thing well probably maybe the mindset was if i'm going to do a solo album i'm going to make it sound different i'm going to do something that i wouldn't normally do if i was playing in black sabbath and unfortunately what would have been a good idea and a, and a good sensible approach to this didn't pan out that way and was pulled back and and again you know <laughs> back into this thing about how the fans reacted to it and, and you can hardly blame them because it was ill-conceived yeah but anyway. okay side two opens up with danger zone uh i never cared for this one it just always felt very stock it sounded like something that any not any band but it could it could have come from some other 80s mid 80s the hard rock heavy metal band. I mean, it's it's catchy. It's okay. It's not like it's it's as 
it's not like I, I hate the song. It's, it is kind of catchy, but for me, it's, it's a little forgettable. It's a little sort of middle of the road. It doesn't have the fire and energy of in for the kill or turn to stone. It's, it's not as melodic as no stranger to love. It's, it's just kind of there for me. And it's one that I always sort of, uh, it reminds me a little bit of like digital bitch, you know, it sits in that same zone for me. It's just a, it's a tad bit forgettable by given like a six out of 10, if I had to rate it as a, as a song, but uh, it is kind of catchy. This is a great song to uh, hop into your firebird, <laughs> crank up your pioneer stereo and roll your windows down on a hot drop summer the cassette day. in <laughs> drop the cassette in and crank up danger zone chicks <laughs> will be really impressed it's even a sort of pump a, up your reebok sneakers too yeah uh, even a silly sort of song titles like the words are just throw away and it's danger uh, zone man danger zone there was another uh song danger zone wasn't that on the top gun soundtrack yeah, yeah. Oh, it could have been you know, we mentioned Ron Keel audition for the band. This sounds like it could have been a Keel. Maybe that was his contribution. Yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe they were. This was inspired by Ron Keel's uh, cup of coffee that he had. Maybe they, the maybe they chased him out the door and said, "Ron, we're we're going to give you credit for the for the song title Danger Zone." Nah, man, you got. I'm good. You guys keep it. Don't worry about it. It's all good. <laughs> uh, this is a guilty pleasure for me. I like this song. I, I do actually crank it up when it comes on. I, I really like it. It's very dated. Uh, it's a, I guess you could say it's a little cringy. It's definitely not dark. It's definitely not Black Sabbath. But it's it's a cool song. It's got a good melody. I like the riff. You know, what can I say? I, it it works for me. I, I like the song. It's very 80s, you know, but I like it. I, I, I don't shy away from it. When, when it comes on, I'm like, oh, Danger Zone. And I'll turn it off. Where's Danger Zone? All right. Well, well you, you threw at me how you, you like No Stranger to Love better than uh, better than Changes. Well, oh, I, like Danger, so I like Danger Zone better than Rock and Roll Doctor. All right. Fair enough. Okay. <laughs> fair enough. Well, actually, I don't know. I'm just saying that to get under your skin. I, I don't know if that's honestly <laughs> Hey, I'm not, I'm not the big... <laughs> Rock and Roll Doctor, I think, is, is is what it is. I like it in the context of the album. Yeah. As I can't, I can't say it's one of my favorite Black Sabbath songs, but I don't hate it. Uh, to go so far as to say that I prefer Danger Zone over Rock and Roll Doc Doctor, I can't do it, man. Although I understand what you're saying, they both are pretty cringy in their own in their own well, way. Harris discuss rock and roll doctor more in depth. You can go back to our technical ecstasy episode, but we will yeah. move on to heart like a wheel. Uh, this is a good showcase for Tony. It's all about Tony in this one. It's a blues number. It's, it's his time, his moment to shine. What sort of doesn't work in this song for me is this is where the mo the backing band doesn't cut it here for yeah. me. I think that the, the, the drums and the bass playing and it just don't fit. If he's going for a late 60s British blues vibe to it, and although Glenn Hughes, I'm sure, certainly understands that, I have a feeling that, you know, Eric Singer and uh, Dave Spitz, it just, their style just does not work on this particular song. And this is where, you know, this is, I never thought of this, but 
when it was an Iommi solo record, you know, maybe he would have been better served to be, you know, like you mentioned on Seven Star, if he had brought in somebody like Don Airy. Hear Heart Like a Wheel, I could have pictured, you know, who could he have, Ginger Baker on drums yeah, and Jack sure. Bruce on bass, you know, and Glenn singing or Glenn playing bass or, uh, you know, I don't know, somebody else from just somebody else besides these guys, somebody that has a better grasp of sort of what I think he was going for here, which was just like a real bluesy thing but it just doesn't it doesn't come across here and it's sabotaged for me by the by the rhythm section which is a shame because i think that tony does have some really cool uh playing it and everything but otherwise it's it doesn't work for me misses the mark yeah the uh the backing band is pretty pedestrian during this they're just keeping time they're just plodding along they're plucking the bass strings and they're just keeping a very simple beat. It's funny you mentioned Ginger Baker because I think that would be a brilliant idea. And I think that Ginger Baker was probably pretty, would have been susceptible to doing this because uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the band PIL, Public Image Limited, uh, Johnny Lydon's band from the Sex Pistols. He did a, an album that is really pretty amazing. It's called, it was just generic. It had a, their logo on the front. It was like uh, just the, the pill on, on the front but it had Bill Laswell on bass. It had Steve Vai on guitar and Ginger Baker plays on the song. Um, it's called Ease and it had, it's very cashmere sounding. Um, so it would have been interesting to hear uh, Ginger Baker and, and he, Ginger Baker always would be a very, um, was a drummer that had a lot of swing. He would he would play in and around the beat. He wasn't ahead of the beat. He wasn't behind the beat. He wasn't on the beat. He was all over, but still really in time, if that makes any sense. Yeah. It would have been really interesting to hear that kind of a rhythm that Ginger Baker would have brought to the song. And I think it would have opened it up and made it more interesting because as it is, I like the melody. I like Glenn's melody a lot. It's catchy. It, it, it can be an earworm. After you listen to it, after I listen to it, it usually stays in my head for a while later. Um, it, it sounds a little, the backing band, the, the rhythm, basic rhythm track is the only drawback. Tony does a solo that is one of those solos that has no direction. It's, to me, it's just, it sounds like noise. And it kind of, it starts out and it just gets faster and faster. And it sounds like it's, what it sounds like this is what tony iomi sounds like when he's coked out of his head and he really has nothing planned they he just thinks that this is the part of the song that needs a guitar solo so that's not really very successful but it's there um the main thing i can pull away from the song that i would say is is worthy would be would be the melody and glenn's voice again it, it's not it's not that dissimilar to um no stranger to love kind of occupies that bluesy ballad type of thing of the two i'd go more with i lean more towards no stranger to love but this is yeah. pretty similar and i agree with you that there's some moments in there where tony has some nice little runs and stuff but it goes on too long and whenever tony tries to play really fast <clears throat> it when it's exposed like this, it sounds like he's tripping over himself, which is very strange because 
in turn to stone and in for the kill, he's playing quite fast things, but they seem to work. But here in this context, he, it just it just sounds like he's sort of tripping over himself and and it doesn't at times, you know, there's moments where I hear him play sort of melodies where it's like, yeah, okay, but it's in general, it just sort of misses the mark. And the 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 band behind him, it almost sounds like a like a backing track. Yeah. Like, some, like, a, like stem. a blue black backing track that you would hear some generic, like it's almost like a drum machine. Yeah behind him or something it's very stiff it has no feel it really drags the song down and i and it feels like i always trying to make up for this lack of energy by just playing really fast at times and it just gets real sort of messy and chaotic and it doesn't work so yeah it sounds like something it sounds like a loop like a studio stem or a loop that yeah yeah in the background um yeah so yeah all right well uh angry heart uh this is a little forgettable for me it's it's okay i guess uh i don't know i don't have a lot to say about this no? song it just okay. feels kind of forgettable for me it's in fact i had to look up the lyrics really quick to try to remind myself really? okay. what the hook was for the song it's it's, it's it kind of just plods along well, it doesn't particularly go anywhere i'm not really sure what the lyrics are about it just sort of doesn't doesn't do anything and coming out of heart like a wheel it's just it's a little bit of a drag heart like a wheel is sort of plodding angry heart doesn't have a whole ton of energy to it that's and it it just sort of sounds like the band's running out of gas yeah they're driving uphill and they're running out of gas okay well, well here's what i'm going to say about it this is my jam Angry Heart <laughs> is my jam. This is my favorite song on Seven Star. I'm not bullshit. I'm not. I'm not kidding. I love the way it goes. Boom, 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 boom. It just builds up, and I love that that Hammond keyboard that Jeff Nichols is laying into on that. It just and he and he hits that that keyboard sound. It just like it has very a very British rock sound. Um, I like Glenn's vocals. I like the progression of the song. I like the way that it. I like the lyrics. It it. The song is called Angry Heart. Could go in a lot of different directions with a title like that. But I think it it sounds like the song should be called Angry Heart. It just kind of builds up so slowly. It builds up the momentum and then it kind of has that release when when Jeff just sort of pounds on that on that Hammond. It's a really cool, really cool thing going on there. And the riff is pretty simple. It may be arguably the only song that I could say would fit into a traditional black sabbath vibe with a couple tweaks but it's it's more the simplistic nature and the feeling of the song it's the it's the one song that i would say has more of a darker vibe than anything else um i i would say that this would be if there was one song that you could could say well yeah this sounds like a black sabbath song i would say angry heart would be it and like i said this this is it's my favorite song on Seven Star, followed by No Stranger to Love. Yeah. Then in for the kill, then turn to stone. Um, but yeah, yeah Angry Heart's my jam. Another, yeah. another one that maybe if they had had uh, John Lord come in and play on. Don't need him. I mean, it's, it's just that simple keyboard. It's the sound. It's, it's where it is in the mix. It's very audible. It doesn't need to be anything 
anything fancy. It just needs to have that that grinding Hammond B3 sound. I, I think that's what it is. I'm, I'm not an expert on, on Hammond organs or anything, but it, it has that cool 70s organ sound and it's very audible. And it, it really is it's placed perfectly uh, within that riff. And I, I think it's really cool. So, you know, it's not for everybody. Obviously. <laughs> All right. Well, the album does end on, I actually would like this, this little coda sort of, it, it, yeah. it, it sort of feels like it's because it, it segues right into this from, from angry heart mm -hmm. and it's called in memory. And this is a highlight on this album for me. Tony's playing some acoustic guitar layered in there. It's maybe the darkest sounding song on the record. It has kind of a dark vibe to it. I kind of wish they could have explored a little bit more of this type of sound throughout the record. I love when Glenn, as the song's fading out, he just keeps saying, it's still haunting me. And he just keeps repeating that line. It's haunt still haunting me, I think is, is great. And the way the song just kind of fades out is uh, yeah. it's really cool. And I like the way it's, it sort of takes, takes the record out. I wish they could have caught a little bit more of this vibe, that layered acoustic guitar that he puts in there gives it a little bit of a creepy haunting feel to it. it makes me kind of think like, you know, maybe if this was, here's something to think of in another uh, timeline, uh, you know, if another universe, if it had been intended to be a Black Sabbath album from the beginning, you know, would they have pursued some more things like this and where could it have gone? And when I hear this in memory, I think like, yeah, you know, they could have done some really kind of darker sounding things and moody yeah. sounding things and it could have really worked. So I like this it's sort of brief and short and just a little tag on Coda thing, but I think it's a really cool, uh, it's a really cool thing. And I wish it had been developed maybe until like a full, I would have loved it if there was a big epic song at the end of the record, because the record itself is a little, on the short side, I think it only clocks in at like 34 minutes or yeah. something for yeah. the whole record. So uh, it, I wish they maybe could have developed this idea and had it turn into some big epic to close, you know, close out the record off, maybe a la like over and over or the uh, uh, song, The Eternal Idol, or, you know, that kind of take it out on a really heavy, moody, dark vibe. Yeah, it, it is rather short. When you're listening to it, it, it does seem to, it does seem to go by pretty quickly. Um, but I agree there, there's moments that could have been if they were just executed a little bit better, if there was a little bit more thought involved, they could have, they could be much more successful there. Cause there's hints of things that are, are, are there, but just maybe just kind of lazy with it. Maybe thinking, ah, well, you know, this is not worth putting that much time into it. And they could have been right. I, I don't know if putting any more effort into these songs would have helped the album become any more popular or any well any more well regarded than or, or better regarded than it was. Um, although, as we mentioned, it, it didn't didn't do too well or too bad in terms of sales. But um, from its historical perspective, could it have been better if if, if there was more thought involved and in, and in, making these songs a little bit more conceptual, the way that Angry Heart goes into the, the, the finale there. Um, yeah, possibly. Um, 
I'd like to hear it. I'd like to hear anything that has, you know, some creative uh, investment within it. But um, you know, as it is, it's it's okay. Um, it could have been better. Um, I, I I think again, coming back to the original thing that we sort of established from the beginning, um, if it was established as a, a Black Sabbath record, if it was, if they were going to work on it and make it a Black Sabbath record, these might be the things that they would have paid more attention to. I, I think it just lacked identity. It it was just a, a an album of music with Glenn Hughes and Tony Iommi. Yeah. Um, Jeff Nichols is along for the ride as per usual. Um, nothing, you know, really profound about his involvement. Um, he's there, utilitarian as he is. Uh, Dave the Beast Spitz and Eric Singer hired guns. Yeah, best. I mean, that would this was it for them. They're out. Uh, they didn't really make a commitment, and there wasn't really a commitment made to them, so they're just there. So you know, it, it's it kind of serves as like a a studio project more or less. It wasn't an album yeah. that was intended to. Uh, even though they did tour behind it and i and i did hear something and i forgot to mention this earlier that so there one of the reasons there was a lag time between born again and this album was because the band did get they, they did basically reassemble and they worked with ron keel for a little while that was short-lived um and then they did some stuff with jeff fenhol uh, actually to the point where they, they demoed some things um they also did they had i guess Dave Donato, is that yeah. that is that am I pronouncing it correctly? Yeah. He was the guy that was in a band with Mark St. John, mm-hmm. who was in Kiss for the Animal Eyes album. There was a white tiger, I yeah, think. I think so, yeah. Yeah, like a like a hair band. Um, and they said he had a good voice. I there are some demos. I don't know if you've ever listened to any of the demos on on YouTube. They're they're floating, they're they're out there. Um, not a good fit. He's got a good voice. Don't don't think it don't think it worked. Um and, and Bill Ward, again, thought the same thing because he was on board. There was that promo picture that was taken with Dave Donato yeah. <laughs> in the middle and, and Geezer and Tony and Bill. Uh, Bill tried it and said, nah, this, this isn't cutting it. This, this isn't Black Sabbath. I think and we've talked about this before. The, the reason that Bill initially comes into situations with Tony and Geezer is to see if it works, realizes it doesn't, He's stuck on the original four, yeah. the, 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 the Black Sabbath and Ozzy, Geezer, Tony and himself. That's his Black Sabbath. But obviously throughout periods of time, he's been willing to jump in and see if it works. And it doesn't. And this is that situation. So he, he leaves and then Geezer goes off and he does something else. I forget what the name of the band was, but um, that also is out there on youtube you can check that out it was i think he's starting to work with pedro house if i'm not mistaken it would later be in that's his name i think would later be in the gzr band or geezer i think so Uh, he he starts up this this uh partnership with pedro house and then they would go on and and geezer would you know between sabbath stints or something he would he would work with uh with, with this guitar player pedro house and that's this is when he started doing that so bill left geezer left Tony's left to his own devices. That's when the idea to make it a solo album started to take shape. And originally he was going to have, he was going to ask um, Rob Halford, Glenn Hughes, who ended up doing it, and one other singer, and I don't remember who it was, Dio. Dio, he was going to ask Dio 
actually. Like maybe the relationship was mended or was at least okay enough for, for them to talk about collaborating on this album, which would have been interesting to hear Halford and, and Glenn Hughes and Dio. And, and it would have made it so that I think it might have been, it might have prohibited it being called Black Sabbath. I think if it had different singers, there's one thing if you have different musicians that aren't part of the original band, but the thing that I think that stabilized it enough for somebody to have the idea to call it Black Sabbath featuring Tony Naomi was that there was one primary singer. I think if there were more than one singer, yeah. it may have been like, well, we'd call yeah. it Black Sabbath, but yeah, you can't really do that because there's the traditional Black Sabbath template is with one singer so but there's two other singers three singers all together now it's going to have to be a tony iomi solo album yeah so unfortunately that didn't pan out and it would have been cool to hear some halford and iomi songs yeah. and and, and was... again as a, as an iomi solo record you know as, as a final thought i guess on this album you can understand why he would want to showcase different aspects of his playing the bluesy thing and heart like a wheel the the more yeah. in for the kill, turn a stone faster stuff, the more melodic side, no stranger to love. Uh, so as, as a solo record, you know, again, it, it does sort of make sense. And if maybe they had known that it was going to be Black Sabbath and, and having come out of tried trying so many different people, I don't think Glenn Hughes and Glenn sort of, you know, alludes to this all the time. He wouldn't have done it if it was Black Sabbath. You know, he knew Tony, they were friends from, uh, right. growing up together the same area and that's probably really the only reason from what I understand that Glenn Hughes even got involved because he thought it was a Tony Iommi solo record mm -hmm. uh, so you know Iommi probably felt like we've tried out all these different singers geezers left Bill has left there's just no other no other choice here but to to go down the solo route and you know it uh it comes out the way it comes out. I, you know, I, I would say this, it is an interesting album. I, I certainly wouldn't recommend it as if somebody came up to me and never heard Black Sabbath before, and I wouldn't recommend it as the first Black Sabbath album for them to get. But as a Black Sabbath fan, it's, it, it's still Tony Iommi. And if Tony Iommi plays Mary Had a Little Lamb, it still sounds like Black Sabbath. You know, it has a Black Sabbath feel to it because he's so such a big part of the sound of Black Sabbath. So there are still things to enjoy here. If you sort of clear your mind of all the drama around this and just take it for what it is, uh, it, it is an enjoyable record. There are some things to be found on it. There's some great playing from, from Tony. There's some amazing singing from, from Glenn Hughes. And like we mentioned, and like you mentioned, it does serve a sort of historical purpose as like this bridge coming out of the geezer Bill Ward era of the band and now moving into the Tony Iommi, owning the name, making all the decisions uh, phase of the band. So it's something that if you're out there and you're, you haven't listened to this record, you don't have this record, I would definitely encourage people to, to get it and to listen to it because there's a, there's a lot to enjoy on this record. Just sort of clear your mind, understand the circumstances that, that, that the record was, was made under and, 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 and enjoy it for, for what it is. So I've enjoyed yeah. it the last couple, I haven't listened to this record in a long time and busting out the vinyl. 
listened to it a bunch of times and listened to it in my car and everything. And, and, and it was fun. You know, there were a lot of things I forgot about this record that I did really enjoy. So yeah. Final thought? No, I, it, yeah. If somebody came to me and said, I'd never heard black Sabbath before, where should I start? I, I wouldn't say, Oh, you, you've got to start with this one. <laughs> <laughs> Unless I was playing a practical joke. Uh, but by the same token, if somebody said, Hey, I've, I'm a big Black Sabbath fan, and I've never heard that album. I, I understand that it's horrible. I would say, well, you if you call yourself a Black Sabbath fan, you need to hear it, and you might like it. You might be surprised if you if you're a Black Sabbath fan and you like Tony Iommi, and you know, and you're a fan of, of British rock, which most Sabbath fans are. You know, they can appreciate Deep Purple and Dry Heap and Thin Lizzy and Gary Moore and UFO and, and stuff like that, even though Thin Lizzy's an Irish band, but you know, it's sort of like in the same same vein. But if you like that stuff, then I think you find something to appreciate on this album. Um, you, you definitely have to remove yourself mentally from it being a Black Sabbath album. And once you do that and you approach it with different perception, yeah, I think I think you'd like it. Um, if you're if you're a big Black Sabbath fan, if you're a casual Black Sabbath fan that likes to wear a T-shirt that says "You can only trust yourself in the first six Black Sabbath records," then you might not enjoy it. it. Might not be for you. But then again, you know, there's a lot of other Black Sabbath records that you probably don't like either. You know, like Eternal Idol and Headless Cross and Tear and Humanizer. And you probably don't like the Dio stuff either. So uh, that wouldn't this album wouldn't be for you. But for the guy that's like willing to accept. Uh, Black Sabbath and for one reason or another hasn't listened to this album maybe because of the preconceived notions that usually accompany it I would say go for it you'll probably like it and you'll you'll probably thank me for encouraging you to listen to it all right well that's heard it on Into the Void a Black Sabbath podcast that's right all right well there's a good positive note to end this one on Uh, we'd like to thank everybody out there for listening and supporting the podcast we do really appreciate it before we go I have two two things still one If you can't get enough of listening to me and Darren talk Black Sabbath, head on over to YouTube and look up Layer of the Alchemist. And Darren and I, we do a thing we call Sabbath Sunday, where every almost every Sunday, we post an episode talking about Black Sabbath and Black Sabbath related topics, including Ozzy and Dio stuff. And we sometimes have guests come on. So if you uh, need more Black Sabbath talk from me and Darren, or are curious what we look like, you can check us out on YouTube at Layer of the Alchemist. Also, if you would like to support the podcast, we have started a uh, page where you can make a donation to help support what we do here at uh, Into the Void, a Black Sabbath podcast. Uh, We do this out of uh, love for Black Sabbath and their music, uh, but there are, you know, some expenses that are generated in the process of making this happen. So any support that people can give us uh, is greatly appreciated. So we have a page over at, it's called Kofi, which is K-O-F-I. If you go to Kofi.com, so K-O-F-I.com slash into the void a black sabbath podcast all one word not spaces so co 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 dash v.com slash into the void a black sabbath podcast you can make a donation there to us in any amount you would like uh 
doesn't matter. We appreciate anything that comes into us. Uh, you know, the support is great and it helps us to continue doing what we are doing here with the podcast. Uh, we just started it very recently. We had our first uh, donation given to us. And I don't know if people want us to read their names, so I'll just say his first name, Matt. Matt, thank you for for your donation here. It is, thanks, Matt. It is greatly appreciated. So thanks again to everybody out there. And uh, I'm not sure what, what is the next album that we have. What is, what is it called? Ozzy. You probably I think we're going to, yeah, I think we're going to do The Ultimate Sin next is that what's up yeah i don't have the list i don't have we have it we have this i, I promise you we have it all worked out here we sat down and and looked at all the uh the date yeah we did the albums coming out but uh all right well you'll just have to tune in tune in to here because we are moving chronologically through the sabbath ozzy and in dio catalog so all right thanks again everybody and uh and uh make sure that uh, you remember that you can only trust yourself the 19 Black Sabbath studio albums and Into the Void, a Black Sabbath podcast.